0: But rather they came to see Jesus because of the hype that surrounded this man. Many people wanted to see see something see, they wanted to see this man do something amazing before their eyes. That's why they came to see him. But there were some who upon hearing the words of Jesus and seeing the works of Jesus believed that this man was the Christ and thus had the authority to forgive their sins. And so dear ones there is a lesson here for us. Is Jesus Christ just a great man and a great teacher who was a great example of, for us of moral virtue? Or is he just an amazing miracle worker, that, miracle worker that we can marvel at? Or is he the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into, into the world to save sinners? Dear ones, no matter what else you believe about Christ, you must understand that he came to save sinners. And so the most important question you have to ask yourself is, what is my relationship to Christ? Is he my Savior? Not is he a great teacher or is he a great miracle worker? And not only is he just a Savior, or even that he is the Savior of other people. The question you need to ask yourself is, is he my Savior? And if you cannot answer that question with a yes, number one, that ought to cause you to be desperate but not hopeless, because number two, you need, to, you need to know that Jesus Christ came to call and to save sinners just like you. And so therefore, what should you do if you cannot answer yes to that question? You should flee to Christ. You should forsake your sin. You should forsake all of your righteousness and flee to Christ, believing this promise that for everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, They shall receive the forgiveness of their sins, and thus they shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so, if you can't say that Jesus is your Savior today, would today be the day that you would go to Christ believing that He can and will be your Savior? The next phrase we see in this verse is that Jesus Christ was teaching the people. Once again, here we see the primacy of preaching. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Mark 121, it says, Jesus came into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. Mark 138 says, And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Mark uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And he was preaching the word to them. And here in Mark 2, verse 13, and he was teaching them. And so whatever you notice about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ as recorded for us in the Gospels, you cannot get around the fact that first and foremost Jesus Christ was a preacher of the gospel. Jesus taking the prophecy from Isaiah and attributing it to himself says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news, the gospel, to the poor. God has appointed the proclamation of the gospel to, the, to be the means by which he saves his people. Paul in Romans 1.16 would say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. In 1 Corinthians 18 it says that the word of the cross, which is just another way of saying the gospel, is the power of God and of salvation. And later in that same passage, it says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In Romans 10, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The lesson here, I think, is very important, but it needs to be said. We need to continuously place ourselves under the preaching of the gospel. For it is God's appointed means for our salvation. And when I say salvation, I'm not reducing salvation down to regeneration and justification. Salvation certainly includes our regeneration and justification, but it also includes our sanctification. Believer. You need to hear the gospel preached week after week after week, for that is God's appointed means to bring you safely into heaven. How do you persevere? Through the means that God has appointed to uphold and strengthen your faith. That is the way that you persevere. Now, what about the lost? Well, the only way for the lost to be saved is through faith in Christ. But how are they they to place their faith in Christ if they've never heard of him? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how is someone to preach unless they are sent? Brothers and sisters, we need to be praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up preachers of the gospel who would go out and preach that every man, woman, boy, and girl would know that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Well, now we move our attention to verse number 14. It says, And as Jesus passed by along the Sea of Galilee... He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Well, at the beginning of this verse, we see that the one who came to seek and to save the lost was passing by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. I'd like you to think back on your own life, if you are a follower of Christ, and to think on this reality, that one day, the Spirit of Christ was passing by, as it were, and he saw you. And he saw you just as you were, he saw you in your sin, he saw you in your weak and hopeless and helpless situation, and he had mercy upon you, and he called you by his grace to be his disciple. Brothers and sisters, may we always be mindful of the reality that Christ searches for the lost, and at the appointed time, he calls them to himself with an irresistible call. May we thank God for his grace, and may we be encouraged to know that the lost around us are not outside the ability of Christ to lay his compassionate gaze upon them and to save them. And so, would we be faithful to pray that God would lay his gaze upon our lost loved ones and save them and call them to himself? Well, now let's turn our attention to the individual in this verse, and that, of course, is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, the first thing we need to notice about this individual is that this is the same individual that is in other places called Matthew. There's there's a multitude of examples in the New Testament of people who had more than one name, and that is the case here. The man named Levi is also called Matthew. Further, this man, as will be made clear in the very next chapter of Mark, in chapter 3, verse 18, is one who will be named as one of the twelve apostles, and thus this is the very Matthew that penned the inspired text of the Gospel of Matthew. Further, if you notice in chapter 3, verse 18 of Mark, you will see that there is another son of Alphaeus mentioned, and that is James, the son of Alphaeus. So does that mean that Levi, or Matthew, is the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus? Well, most scholars are in agreement that this is likely not the case, Because in the very same listing of the apostles, you have two other sibling groups mentioned, and there is no explicit indication that Matthew and James are brothers. And so the most natural explanation of this is that that Matthew or Levi and James simply had fathers who had the same name. Now, this verse goes on to reveal a very important detail about this man named Levi or Matthew. It says he was sitting in a tax booth. And other places in the Gospels make it very clear that this man named Levi was a tax collector by occupation. And so he wasn't just sitting in the tax booth for, for, any, for no reason. He was there because he was a tax collector. Now, this is an important detail for us to know as we move forward in the narrative. You see, Levi was a Jewish man, and that is to be expected. He had a Jewish name, and this man lived near Capernaum which on the Sea of Galilee, which was a Jewish fishing town. But it's not just the ethnicity of this man that is the important detail. It is the ethnicity of this man coupled with this man's occupation that is so important for us to understand. You see, for Levi to be a tax collector meant that he was one who worked for the Roman government. He would have been sort of what we would call like a a contract worker for the Roman government. Now, in order for us to understand the significance of this, we have to understand that Israel at this time was under Roman occupation. The supreme governing authority of the land was Rome. And the Jewish people, although in their homeland geographically, they were the unwilling subjects of Rome. To put it in a modern context, and I don't really like to do this, but for the sake of illustration, say if China was to overtake the USA and China became the dominating force of this nation, and let's just say they had a particular uniform that they wore that you had grown unwillingly accustomed to as they marched up and down the streets enforcing their governmental control. And then you saw an American who was marching with and wearing the uniform of the enemy. Now, I think we can all imagine the kind of thoughts that we would have towards that person. That person would be labeled as a traitor. Traitor. Cicero, who was known as Rome's greatest politician, once stated, a nation can survive its fools, but it cannot survive treason from within. Another anonymous source says, traitors are more dangerous than enemies. Well, this is exactly how Levi or Matthew would have been viewed by his Jewish compatriots. He would have been one who was hated for the occupation that he had chosen, for the occupation that he chose revealed his allegiances. And there was even more than this that would have made it to where Levi would have been considered the lowest of the low among Jewish society. Because the way that Levi would have made his money would not have been through receiving a salary from the Roman government. No, instead the Roman government would have given Levi a quota, a certain amount of taxes that he would need to collect in a particular area. And that's all they cared about. But in order for Levi to make a living he would have to charge the Jewish people above and beyond what the Romans charged on their taxes. And the Roman government did not care how much he charged over and above. And so the reality is that Levi was not only a traitor to his people, but he was a thief. And he was one who frauded his fellow citizens out of their hard-earned money in order to line his own pockets. To put it bluntly, Levi was one who had the root of all kinds of evil in his heart. Levi was a lover of money. And the Bible is very clear. It is harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. A man cannot serve both God and money. And so this is the person that Jesus saw sitting in a tax booth. A man who was a traitor to the Jewish people, a thief, and a lover of money. And Jesus would have known these things about this man, on the one hand, he would have known these things simply because the, the, that would have been common knowledge, knowledge in the culture. They would have known this about this man named Levi. But further, Jesus also was divine. And because he has divine omniscience, he would have known the very secrets of this man's heart. And so Jesus, Jesus knew full well that Levi was a grievous sinner. Now, Let's notice what Jesus does after seeing this man in the second half of verse 14. It says, and he said to him, this, this grievous sinner, he said, follow me. And he, that is Levi, rose and followed him. Well, here in the latter half of this verse, we see at least two truths. First, we see the doctrine of unconditional election. And secondly, we see the doctrine of effectual calling in John fifteen sixteen, we read the following Jesus speaking says you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide well in that passage Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room just prior to his arrest to his, to his arrest and crucifixion and there he is reminding his disciples that he chose them he elected them They did not elect him or choose him, but he chose them. And no doubt, at that time, Matthew would have thought back to that day when he was sitting in a tax booth beside the Sea of Galilee, and he would have been fully aware that Jesus set his love upon him before he set his love upon Jesus. We love because he first loved us. Further, as we've already established, Matthew or Levi would have been fully aware that Jesus did not choose him because he was more desirable than the rest. Quite the contrary. Matthew knew that he would have been the last person that the king of the Jews would choose if the choice would have been based on merit. Matthew met no condition that would have moved Christ to choose him. No, what we see is that Jesus freely chose this man, this tax collector, not for anything good that this man had done, but simply because it was the good pleasure of the Lord to choose this man so that his grace might be magnified. Brothers and sisters, remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. There Paul says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong." God chose what is low and despised in the world, tax collectors, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I'm sure that this truth of God's unconditional election of his people was something that Matthew cherished very deeply. And so I ask you this morning, would you consider your calling? If you be in Christ this morning, God chose you Not because of anything good in you, but because he is a gracious and good God. And to those of you in this room who might think, well, I'm not good enough. I've sinned too much. God could never choose me. Well, dear one, listen. No one has ever been good enough to be chosen by God. And this passage is a reminder of that reality. You don't have to be good enough to be chosen by God. No one's good enough. But he chooses sinners to set his grace upon And so the question before you is this. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Well, here's the good news. God has chosen to save every sinner that trusts in Christ. So trust in him today. Well, the second truth that we see in the latter half of verse 14 is the doctrine of effectual calling. You see, we must distinguish between what is sometimes called the outward or universal call of the gospel and what is called the effectual or internal call of the gospel. In our passage, there were many people that day beside the Sea of Galilee who heard the gospel. Remember, Jesus was teaching them. He was proclaiming the gospel to them. And so they were called to repent and believe. In other words, they were were called to receive the outward call of the gospel. And the same is true this morning. Everyone in this room, nearly 2,000 years after this event, is receiving the outward call of the gospel. And so repent And believe the gospel. But in the life of Levi, he not only heard the outward call, but he received an effectual calling. We see this in Levi's response. Jesus said, Follow me, and Levi rose and followed him. And this is important for us to understand. How can you know that you have received the internal or the effectual call? Because sometimes when these two two calls get differentiated, people misunderstand and misapply what is being said. If you've ever heard the gospel preach, you have received the outward call. But does that mean that you're also supposed to be looking and waiting for some sort of secret internal call? Am I supposed to to wait for the Spirit of God to tug at my heartstrings, as some may put it? No. What it means is, to have the, outward, the effectual call is that you respond to the outward call of the gospel with repentance and belief. That's what it means to receive the effectual call. The effectual call is a work of the Spirit of God whereby He enables you to lay hold of Christ by faith and to turn from your sins, desiring to be forgiven and cleansed from those sins. It is God taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh and thereby causing you to willingly and joyfully, as Levi did, follow Christ. I'll put it this way. God has no stillborn children. If you have been born again to a living hope, as evidenced by the reality that you trust in Christ, and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin, and for the righteousness that you need to stand in His presence, and further you have declared war against your sins, you can be assured that you have received the effectual call. And so I urge you, if you have not come to Christ, do not sit around waiting for some secret internal tugging of your heart. Christ Jesus invites and commands you to repent and believe the gospel today. That is the call. And so obey the call. And as Matthew did, follow Christ. We now turn our attention to verse number 15. And it says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Well, here we see that Jesus had called Levi to follow him, and then Levi then invites Jesus over to his home for a meal. In the parallel passage in Luke, we see that this meal was a great feast. Literally, in the Greek, it, is, it was a, a mega-feast a, or a mega-banquet. We might say that Levi threw what we, what we might call a redemption party. And dear ones, shouldn't every Lord's Day be a feast day? A day that we celebrate the redemption that is ours in Christ? Every Lord's Day should be like this. And so Levi invites Jesus and his other disciples to this feast, but he doesn't just invite them Levi invites his friends also. Now, who do you think would have been the friends of Levi? Well, remember who he was. He was a social outcast to the religious elite of Judaism. He was considered a pariah in this culture. And so, of course, his friends would have been those who were similar to him. His friends were other tax collectors and sinners. Now, the term sinners here is a broad term it would have been who the Pharisees would have labeled as sinners. And this would have included everyone from the roughest of the rough to those who simply didn't follow the Pharisees' traditions of purity. And as we will see moving forward in this book, Jesus and his disciples would have been labeled as sinners by the Pharisees. But before we dig into this opposition that we will see from the Pharisees, let's pause for a moment to see what lessons we might draw from verse 15. First, I think... Lying here on the surface of this verse is the lesson that God uses the hospitality of his people in the furtherance of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what Levi is engaging, here, engaging in in verse 15 is more significant than what meets the eye. In first century Palestinian culture, hosting people in your home was a big deal. They didn't have the overabundance of food that we have today. And so hosting a banquet like this in your home would have been very costly to this man. And further, it would have communicated something to the people you invited in. To have someone come and recline at table with you was to treat them with a level of dignity and respect, to treat them as an equal. And so I think we need to understand here that there is a difference between giving an underprivileged person, for example, food, and inviting that person into your home for a meal. There is a difference in those things. Now, in no way am I saying that mercy ministries like food banks or providing clothing for people or bad or unnecessary. No, not at all. We, we should definitely do those things. Those are good things to do. And our church certainly has been involved in many mercy ministries. But it is different. It is different when you invite someone in. When you extend not only your resources, but your heart and your fellowship to a person. I think Rosaria Butterfield makes a good point in the following quote. She states, Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes, listen to this, not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. I think this is one of the natural results of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Levi was called to follow Christ. And this meant far more than simply being a fan of Christ. No, it meant that Levi was giving up his very life to the service of Christ. This meant that all that Levi had Christ had claim upon it. And thus Levi, as a disciple of Christ, would use whatever gifts the Lord had given him in the service of the Lord, including his home. And so as Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give of, give of himself for others, so too we must be willing to give of ourselves for the well-being of our fellow man. Paul captures this well in 1 Thessalonians two eight, where he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And so when we seek to reach the lost, it's more than just sharing the gospel with them. We want to share the gospel and our very selves with them. The weapons of our warfare and the advance of Christ's kingdom our intercessory prayer, the proclamation of the gospel, and sacrificial love. And so may we give ourselves more and more to these things, but let us not forget that we must have sacrificial love for those who are lost and dying in their sins. The second lesson or or truth that we can see from verse 15 is that sinners felt comfortable in the presence of Christ. Now, we do need to qualify what is meant by sinners feeling comfortable in the presence of Christ. Jesus was and is holy. And there are multiple occasions in the Gospels where we see that when sinners are confronted with the holiness of Christ, they were terrified. Darkness does not like the light. Darkness hates the light. In my years of working for defects, I've been in many homes that we could classify as less than clean. And I've seen what happens when you turn on a light in a dirty house. You will see all kinds of critters scattering very quickly. And we've all probably experienced what it is like to turn over a rotten log in the woods. Those bugs, when, when they are exposed to the light, what, they do, what, what do they do? They, they run from the light. Why? Because they hate the light. They, want to, they, they feel safe in where? In the darkness. Well, in the same way, sinners, generally speaking, do not like the light. Why? Because it exposes their sins. So, how can we explain this occasion here where sinners felt comfortable in the presence of Christ? I think the explanation can be found in the reality that Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. He loved sinners, He came to save sinners. And thus, when a sinner understood that Jesus loved them and came so that they might be forgiven of their sins, they were drawn to Christ. The safest place for a sinner to be is at the feet of Jesus Christ. The repentant sinner, the sinner who has a broken and contrite heart, the sinner who recognizes who he is and who Christ is and understands that Jesus Christ is his only hope, For that sinner, there is no place they'd rather be than to run into the arms of Christ. You see, you do not need to compromise holiness in order to love sinners. But you do have to have a heart of humility and compassion if you are going to love sinners in the way that Christ loved sinners. And so may the Lord bless us to be more humble, more loving, more compassionate, and yes, more holy in our pursuit of the lost. Sinners should feel comfortable in our presence. Not comfortable in their sin, but comfortable knowing that that we love them and that we desire what's best for them. Well, now we come to verse 16. And here we see that the Pharisees come back on the scene and as always, they come back on the scene to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16 reads, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, from this verse, let us notice the following. First, the hard-hearted blindness of the Pharisees. Remember, Levi had thrown a redemption party. Well, the Pharisees did not come to join in in that redemption party. They did not come to rejoice like the angels over one sinner who repents. No, instead they came to accuse Jesus and even to lead his disciples astray. These religious men were utterly blind to the whole purpose of the religion they professed to practice. The whole Old Testament has one primary message and that was to point to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. The very reality that the Old Testament pointed to was being fulfilled before their very eyes. The Lord had to The Lord had come to proclaim good news to the poor and to give liberty to those who were captive. And the Pharisees were blind to this reality. And may we check our hearts in this as well. May we not get so caught up in arguing for our particular views on non-essential matters that we fail to rejoice when the salvation of the Lord visits a sinner. May we be very careful not to do that. The second thing that I would like to point out from this verse is the satanic question of the Pharisees. Notice their question once more. They asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now to be sure, this was not an innocent question. They were not genuinely intrigued by what Jesus was doing. They did not see Jesus' action as that which was worthy of imitation. Their hearts were not melted as they saw the compassion that Jesus had towards sinners. No, their question to the disciples was clearly to instill doubt into, the, into, the mind, into their minds concerning the Lord who had called them. That's why they asked a question. They were trying to cause the disciples to question the Lord that they had followed. If you remember way back in the Garden of Eden... When Satan tempted our first parents, what was his mode of operation? His goal was to introduce doubt into Adam and Eve concerning the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. The Pharisees are doing that very thing in this verse. They are seeking to cause the disciples to reconsider their decision to follow this man named Jesus. It is as if they are saying... This Jesus whom you are following is not a trustworthy guide because he is a sinner. He doesn't even follow the law. He should know that to eat with tax collectors and sinners would make him unclean. So therefore, why would you follow this man? He's not worthy to be followed. Now, why would the Pharisees do this? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 8. The reason that they are doing this is because they are of their father, the devil. And thus, their will is to do their father's desires. And so, without a doubt, this question, far from being an innocent, an innocent question um, concerning or, 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 a, or even a righteous concern on behalf of Jesus and his disciples, was actually a satanic question. It was a question meant for one purpose, and that was to destroy Jesus and his followers. Well, now we come to the last verse in our text today. And that is verse 17, where Jesus' response to this wicked question is given to the Pharisees. The verse reads, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The first thing we notice in this verse is that Jesus became aware of this question, even though it was not directly asked to him. Well, we have to exercise a little bit of sanctified imagination concerning how Jesus Christ came about hearing this question. There are three reasonable speculations on how Jesus became aware of this question that the Pharisees asked. First, it could be that he simply overheard the Pharisees asking this question. So they were asking the disciples. Jesus in the background overheard the question. Secondly, it is reasonable to suspect that the disciples came into the house and told Jesus the question that they were asked. And then a third possibility is that Jesus, by virtue of his divine omniscience, heard the question even though he was out of earshot. Now, we simply don't know how Jesus became aware of this question, but I do think it is somewhat safe to assume that Jesus was in the house and the Pharisees were outside. And that when Jesus became aware of this question, he comes outside to address the situation. In fact, I would say Jesus here does what Adam should have done in the garden. You remember Jesus, or you remember Satan asked his questions directly to who? To Eve, right? Adam should have been on guard. He should have moved Eve to the side, stepped up, and answered Satan himself. But of course, we know that Adam did not do that. But here, Jesus, as the last Adam, or the obedient and victorious Adam, Steps in front of his disciples and confronts the questions that the Pharisees had. And I love how he answers their question. He gives them a parable. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Here we see wisdom personified in the captain of our salvation. In this quaint one liner, Jesus boldly reasserts who he is, what his mission is, and the hard-hearted wickedness of the Pharisees. Jesus declares that he is the physician, the physician of souls, the one who has the ability to provide the once and for all remedy for sin. He was claiming to be God in the flesh. Further, in this beautiful one-liner, Jesus declares his mission. He came to heal the sin-sick souls of mankind. And lastly, he precisely diagnoses and rebukes the wickedness of the Pharisees. If they were truly of God, they would be rejoicing that sinners were being saved. And this leads us to the last phrase of this wonderful passage where Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what a wonderful summation of the gospel that we have in those nine words. Why did the eternal Son of God take on human nature in the incarnation? Why did he then subject himself to to perfect obedience to the very law of which he gave? Why did Jesus at the appointed time suffer and bleed and die on a Roman cross as the very wrath of God was poured out upon his head? Why was all of that necessary? Because, as the scriptures tell us, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Further, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It goes on to say, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It was necessary because the reality is mankind has fallen into sin and is therefore subject to the miseries thereof. And thus man is powerless to rescue himself from his impending doom. Mankind cannot do enough righteous deeds in order to escape the wrath of God. Do you not know that no one has been justified through the works of the law? The covenant of works has been broken And there is no do-over. Mankind is in a helpless and hopeless situation. That is, unless God intervenes. And praise God, He has done that very thing. In God's amazing grace, He has made a second covenant, a better covenant, a covenant of grace, wherein He promises life and salvation to sinners through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus did not come to call the righteous... Because there is no righteous people under the covenant of works, under the law. Even these Pharisees who were doctors of that law, they were not righteous under that law. And dear ones, neither are any of you. But our salvation is not to be found in the law, but rather it is to be found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law on our behalf the one who paid our sin debt on the cross. And so therefore, if you realize that you are a sinner before God and that there is nothing that you can do to justify yourself, then the person and the work of Christ is very good news to you. And so may everyone in this room today obey the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. And may we do that very thing today the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that your word has revealed to us the way of salvation. We do thank you that your word comes as good news to us who are sinners, to us who are left to ourselves hopeless and helpless. For we can never do enough righteous deeds to to be accepted before you. But, O Lord, you have sent your Son to keep that law on our behalf and to to die in our place on the cross. And you have promised that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. O Father, we thank you so much for this gospel. And I do pray that this, this gospel would go forth today in power and that everyone in this room would repent and believe the gospel those who have never done so, that they, would, that they would repent and believe for the first time to the saving of their souls. And to everyone in this room who is a believer, that they would also repent and believe in the gospel. And this to the praise of your, praise of your glorious grace. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.